0: Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organized crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organized crime around the world. This episode is called The Truth About Modern Slavery.
1: Hello, and welcome to our panel on the truth about modern slavery, which is oriented around Emily Kenway's book by the same name. Thank you very much for joining us. My name is Cameron Tybus, and I'm the editor of the Beyond Trafficking and Slavery Project on Open Democracy, and I'll be your moderator for the next hour and a half or so. We've created a relatively straightforward setup with our excellent group of panelists to where each will speak for about 10 minutes or so, and give different facets of what we mean about the truth about modern slavery, and each all speaking to some of the central themes of Emily's book. So. Our panelists are Emily Kenway, of course, who is the author of the book under discussion today. And she was also the formerly former policy advisor to both the NGO focus on labor exploitation and the UK's first independent anti-slavery commissioner. We also have Ella Cockbane, who is an assistant professor in the department of security and crime science at UCL, as well as Dr. Rosemary Broad and Professor David Gadd who are both in the criminology department at the University of Manchester. And so, Emily, I'd like you to start us off. And your book is centrally concerned with the power of frames and how they shape our interpretation of phenomena. And you argue that modern slavery is one of many possible frames for making a sense of exploitation. And in particular, you say that a powerful effect of this frame is that it has a unifying effect. that brings a wide variety of exploitative experiences under a single and particularly emotive label. Could you flesh out the central theme of your book and explain what you mean by this, how it works and what some of the consequences of this are?
2: Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Cameron. And I just wanna say um, before I dive in that Beyond Trafficking and Slavery, the platform which Cameron is the editor of is like a kind of go-to place if you're interested in what we're talking about today for the latest research, the latest thinking and the voices of the least heard people in these conversations as well, people actually directly affected. So thank you so much for having me at this conference. It's really exciting to do this event, especially with this amazing panel. As you say, Cameron, my book basically poses and answers a question, which is what is modern slavery? Not as a crime type, not as the specific factors of an incident or what human trafficking actually means, but what is modern slavery as a story, as a unified tale about exploitation and how is that affecting the world that we're in? So I draw on framing, which comes to us from cognitive linguistics. And essentially it shows us that the ways in which we describe something, so the words we use, also the visuals we use, the metaphors and so on, shapes our understanding of that thing. We all know this to be true if we think about it in terms of political spin or advertising, but it's also true for those very deep-seated concepts that we hold that we may not realise are shaping how we perceive uh, the world around us. I think a great way to think about this is as an actual picture frame, and doing Zoom events is great for this because we are in a little, little box. So you think about What's inside the picture frame of modern slavery? Who are the characters that are there? How are we told that we should understand those characters? What are the causes? What are the solutions? And perhaps most importantly, and what I'm going to talk about is what's outside the frame. What's not in that picture? What's not part of that story? To be clear though, this does not mean that severe exploitation isn't real. I'm not saying that, of course it is um but with anything in the world there are two layers to how we can understand it so there's the actual phenomena that we're dealing with so um you know the process and processes and experiences that are happening but then there's the story we tell about those how we understand those and how that fits with our own political opinions and so on and the reason why it matters is not because of some sort of ivory tower interest in linguistics it's because if we tell the wrong story, then we inevitably select the wrong solutions, right? Because we're misunderstanding the problem. So if we think about modern slavery as a story about exploitation, what is that story telling us? Well, here are three of the constituent parts that I talk about in the book. And obviously I'm doing a whistle stop tour. So one of the first things that's very apparent about this storyline about modern slavery is that it is an aberration, right? It's an anomaly. It's an exceptional occurrence within an otherwise fine socioeconomic system And we see this in the language used by um, politicians, by media and so on. We are told to spot the signs of slaves because it's something that we can spot and extricate, right? It's described as a parasite, as a virus. It's quite amusing preparing to do this talk and then having the intro video where the second speaker essentially outlined what I'm talking about here. We're we're talking about modern slavery as something which infects and infiltrates our economy. Um, It threatens our economy. And that potentially needs to be um, interrogated, which I will do shortly. Part of this aberration notion is that the cause of modern slavery is this individual deviant, right? Or deviants who've got together in a gang. Um, So uh, rather than looking at systemic issues, we are pointing the finger at individual villains, right? And therefore we can solve it, the problem by extricating that problem and everything can carry on as usual. A second uh, component of this picture frame of modern slavery is that it is above politics. So you see in speeches about this, in sort of global statements and so on, that it's above party politics. It's a humanitarian issue um, and or a criminal issue. But it's certainly not about who you vote for in an election. I think that whenever someone tells you an issue is not political, an alarm bell should go off in your head because politics obviously is about distribution of rights and resources and power. Um, So when someone is trying to erase those questions from an issue that really needs to be cause for concern. Thirdly, evidently, the word slavery is in the phrase modern slavery, right? That's a choice and that's a choice on part from campaigners because it is something that makes people sit up and pay attention. But it has a particular effect on our understanding of contemporary exploitation, right? We think we abolished slavery. That's the kind of national mainstream, international mainstream narrative, right? Um, Now, aside from the slight problem there that we caused it, um, the, the reality is we did not abolish what we are now calling slavery. We abolished the legal right of one person to own another, We did not abolish severe exploitation. And in fact, when we abolished that legal right of ownership, the plantation owners who'd been relying on slave labor to make their lovely money freaked out. And what we had was something that's pejoratively called the coolie trade. Millions of Indian and Chinese people shipped over to plantations working under conditions, sometimes as bad as under historical slavery, definitely conditions that would fit under definitions of modern slavery, human trafficking for slavery and so on. So in reality, we did not abolish what we now think of as slavery. And that's because we didn't change any of the systems that underlie it. Uh, we didn't do it then and we, we can't actually do it now. But the modern slavery story tells us something else. So we have this great crusade of our times, right? And if you read enough of the um, literature around this and the speeches, great crusade is really how it's portrayed. We have our baddie, the villainous criminal trafficker. We have our hero, the state, the police. And then we remedy the situation by rescuing the victim who ended up in this situation by naivety or by abduction. That's the kind of general picture of things. Now, the problem here is that this is a fairy tale version of exploitation, right? We've all heard stories like that, that have that triad of characters, the person's rescued at the end, everything's fine. We read them to children. So unfortunately, reality is messier and more complex than a fairy tale. And I'm going to very briefly show you some of the ways in which this fairy tale is obscuring the real nature of the problem and therefore misdirecting the solutions that we're choosing. So firstly, Thinking about um, this idea that uh, most trafficking is abduction, which people often hold as a a opinion, it's in that um, picture frame. Actually most trafficking today is not abduction, it's migration gone wrong. So if our strategy to tackle trafficking is focused on the traffickers, the villains of our story, the abductors, then we are purely addressing the symptom, not the deep cause, because the deep cause is the unavailability of legal pathways to migrate which pushes people to move undocumented and become highly exploitable on their journeys if they survive those journeys. Obviously, people do bad things. I'm not someone who pretends that if we solve the deep causes of things, nothing bad will ever happen. That's not my opinion of human nature at all. But if we throw money and police time and resources at stopping traffickers without addressing migration policy, and in the case of the UK, consistently making migration policy worse, We are basically throwing a thimble of water at raging fire. That is as simple as that. A second way we can see the story operating in a way that completely um, misinforms us and our solutions is around the economy. So um, we need to consider the economic processes and ideological norms that are creating the conditions for exploitation to thrive. Right. When we think of victims as duped and lured and so on, we're focusing on this idea that they're naively persuadable by traffickers, and that's generally the kind of opinion that perpetuates through policymaking, through the public and so on. But if I come up to anyone who's here today and say to you, hey, do you wanna work for me as a cleaner? I'll pay you 30 quid a day and you can live in this multiple occupancy house, yeah? You're gonna say no, because you have other economic opportunities I think of the case of Mark, who um, was uh, he's told his story to the BBC and he was trafficked into forced labour. He was a homeless man in the UK. And he told his story and he said, like, at first it seemed good. He was offered like, shelter and food. And once he was there, he realised he was in a really bad situation. and You know, this was horrible. And he had to make a choice. Did he stay in this situation or did he try to escape? And Marx said in his own words, he chose the lesser of two evils. And that was to stay in that situation because of his economic reality. Another example I give in my book is this fantastic research done by an academic called Peter Olaywola, who um, uh, in Nigeria, there are uh, children going from rural areas to cities to work as domestic workers and exploitation can occur to them. And it's it's a problem. The Nigerian government's approach was to try to raise the awareness of the parents and children in the villages that they might be exploited if they go and do this, as if they had no idea, you know. Peter Olaiwola thankfully went there and listened to what they actually know. Now of course they're not stupid because poverty does not equal stupidity. The parents and children knew that exploitation was possible, but based on an assessment of the range of options available to them for um, survival, for social mobility, that was the best option available. And this is completely hidden in the modern slavery story. Poverty is not part of that conversation. Why are we talking about organized crime when we're not talking about poverty and immigration policy and so on? So you can see a flavor of some of the ways that this story really causes problems with how we think about exploitation and what we should be doing instead. Um, In summary, I think that one of the best ways to think about the problem that we have here is that when we think about modern slavery purely through the story I've talked about, and indeed purely as a problem of organised crime, as a problem of the criminals, we are Essentially repeating uh, the Greek myth of Sisyphus. Okay, so Sisyphus uh, had pissed off the gods massively. And so he was forced to spend eternity rolling a massive boulder up a hill, and it would always fall back down and he would always have to roll it back up and on and on and on for the end, till the end of time, right? So this very laborious work that's happening, certainly in police investigations, I fully understand and respect how complex trafficking investigations are. It's laborious work, takes money and resources, is ultimately futile for the overarching goal, not for the individual case, but for the overarching goal. And interestingly, it's my final point, is that etymologically, the word futile comes from a Latin word, putilitatum, that um, means worthlessness and emptiness, but also means vanity. And I think that this is a really core point around a modern slavery story. All of us here who are working on these kind of topics want to make the world better. We don't want people to be experiencing extreme harm But vanity can get in the way of finding the real solutions because we feel ourselves swept up in this crusading story against the baddies. And I think that's the real thing we need to get to the heart of, particularly if we're here today with criminologists, practitioners in the crime field, is how can we start to address those real deep causes? How can we infuse our research with that? And if we're police, how can we speak up about the actual reality of what's causing those problems in the first place? Thank
1: you. Thank you very much. Um, And you've done a a wonderful job of highlighting some of the ways that these structural factors can lead to lots of different permutations of bad outcome. And then those bad outcomes get funneled straight back down into a single label, which is victims in, in the case of most of your anecdotes. And the fun thing about this panel is that we're now going to explore two of the three bits of your triad of heroes victims and villains and unfortunately we didn't have a a researcher of the heroes to hear today but we do have Ella Cockbane has been researching people that are often put under the victim label and then both Rosemary and David have been researching people put under the villains label and to to tell to note at the end of everybody's presentations we will have some time for Q&A so if anybody has any questions um, please do write them into the chat box and we'll try to get to them at the end. But we're going to start with Ella. And Ella, you wrote with you, you recently wrote a paper that analyzed submissions to the National Referral Mechanism, which is the UK's central system for identifying potential victims of modern slavery. And I was wondering if you could expand on this idea of uh, modern slavery as a potentially problematic consolidator or unifier by summarizing the diversity that you found in those submissions. And if you have time, you could also tell us how you've come to think of the politics of modern slavery now that you have so much. To spend so much time looking behind the curtain. Um, where is it useful, perhaps? And also, where might it lead people astray?
3: Great, thanks, Cameron. Um, so modern slavery, um, or modern slavery, because I think the conceptual quote marks are quite useful here, because the term itself is very problematic, and has been extensively critiqued for the various kind of inaccuracies and racial baggage it brings with it. Um, which, like Emily said, is not to say that extreme exploitation is not real because it very much is real. It's just the frame, the frame itself causes concerns. Um, anyway, so that is a super broad conceptual umbrella. and it can kind of takes all these disparate issues and bundles them together in a way that can mask considerable complexity and diversity. And I think part of the problem we have here is that the modern response to trafficking, exploitation, non slavery, it very much kind of picked up pace towards the end of the 20th century with a focus on sexual exploitation and the sex trafficking of women and girls in particular, which then in turn, um, lots of academics have traced that back to earlier kind of panics around the so-called white slave trade so this kind of big umbrella concept does cover a lot of things but it hasn't been particularly inclusive inclusive from the start it has been very skewed um so what my colleague kate bowers and i did uh, was we analyzed thousands of referrals to the uk's national slavery mechanism over the first five and a half years of its operation. So between 2009 and 2014. So during this period, it was used only for trafficking. So the modern slavery um, inclusion came later with the Modern Slavery Act. Um, Now, of course, the individuals who are identified as suspected victims of trafficking and those that then go on to be given the kind of official label of trafficking victim are not in themselves necessarily representative of the broader population of people who are affected by various forms of exploitation there's almost certainly kind of biases and skews in the data set in terms of you know whether people self-identify as victims whether people are identified by relevant authorities if they then have awareness of the complexity of the problem if they know about the nrm if people because adults have to give consent so if they give consent to enter so this is not a representative data set but what it does do is it gives us a really good opportunity to dig into some of the potential differences between the main kind of broad types of trafficking that are typically identified in the uk and the way the system works here is that um, individual referrals are then kind of assigned under a category of the main exploitation type and the three biggest ones encountered here are sexual exploitation, domestic servitude, and other labor exploitation. For concision, I'll refer to these as sex, domestic servitude, and labor, but that's of course not to say that sexual labor or domestic labor is not in itself work. Um, That's more a kind of concision point. So within the kind of um, sample of, or the sort of set of confirmed victims, there were 2,630 over that period, and it was 45% labor, 42% sex, 13% domestic servitude, which is a big change since when the system was initially introduced, when uh, in its first year of operation, all the referrals were related to sex, which again, reflects the kind of broader concerns at the time. And what we found by analysing these detailed individual level data was that there was significant, so statistically significant, and often very substantial variations between the trafficking types. Uh, A really obvious example is gender. So 62% of the overall sample were female, but actually when you break it down into these three broad types, the gender patterns change enormously. only 23% so less than a quarter of the identified labour trafficking victims were female compared to 97% for sex and again of course it may be that certain forms of exploitation that don't conform to expectations like men being trafficked for sex may be less likely to be identified as such but also beyond this the probably are kind of very real differences and patterns in exploitative behaviour that are then reflected to some extent in the data. You see it again with age, so labour trafficking, much flatter distribution, whereas sex trafficking, as you might expect, kind of peaks around late teens, early 20s. Um, again, some marked differences in terms of the regions people are coming from it's so Overall, just over half the sample came from within the European Union. But if you look for domestic servitude, it was only 8%, whereas for labour trafficking, it was 80%. And again, here you can start to see how the logistics of the local context operate because, of course, pre-Brexit, people from within the EU had the right to move and work freely in the UK. So what you find in the labour trafficking sample is a lot of people from poorer, newer EU states who could be inserted sort of legitimately into the labour market, not in all cases, but often, and then... Um, so it's very easy, relatively speaking, to exploit them, very profitable, much less risky. Um, so those are some of the types of differences in terms of socio-demographic variables. There were also differences in people's experiences. So the concentration of different trafficking types across the country. Uh, which likely reflect differences in opportunities to exploit people, the types of industries available, et cetera, and also differences in responses. Um, So an example there is the typical times taken to make a decision on domestic servitude cases were substantially longer than for either sex or labour trafficking, even when you control for all the other factors, like differences in whether or not you come from the EU. Um, So that suggests there may be particular problems in how domestic servitude cases are assessed and or particular complexities in them. Um, So overall, I think what this research really kind of underlines is that within this broad umbrella, it's really important to disaggregate into meaningful components so that you can have responses that address the specific drivers and enablers and have more nuance And if you think of it at a kind of common sense level, um, what you need to do to respond effectively to the trafficking and sexual exploitation of children, for example, is going to be wildly different to what you need to do to respond to abuses within the regular labour market, um where there's kind of you know much more formal oversight there's these kind of you know labor inspection processes you can draw on whereas you might not want to be looking at child protection systems there so it's a very kind of different issues require different responses although you know obviously you want to have them within a kind of holistic overall response in so far as you know the UK is legally obliged to meet certain minimum obligations when it comes to the sport of trafficking victims for example Um, Also, I think it really highlights the importance of going beyond these kind of global statistics or projections, um, and looking at the local context. Um, I would say, though, it's important not to overstate the kind of issue of between type differences, because what we then follow that up with is detailed research into labour trafficking, specifically looking at 450 um, detailed case files for EEA national, EU nationals they were, uh, that had been identified as labour trafficking victims. And what you see within those case files is just a huge huge amount of variation in terms of their experiences in terms of which industries they were exploited in whether it was you know agriculture or factories or shoplifting or drug cultivation or a combination of lots of different things because that often happened Um, also very much kind of speaking to Emily's point around this tendency to see it as you know these super sort of naive, vulnerable victims. Actually, there was huge amounts of difference. Some people were exploited for very, very, very long periods, some for much shorter, some experienced much more severe abuses. So very much speaking to this idea of a continuum of exploitation as opposed to this kind of binary of trafficked versus not trafficked. The accounts of the victims also very much throw into question this tendency to exceptionalize trafficking and treat it as these kind of, you know, super evil uh, criminal masterminds. Because actually, again, within the cases, lots of variation. There were some far reaching, you know, international criminal networks that would probably conform to any definition of organized crime. But at the other end of the spectrum, there were also people who were recruited, transported, abused just by the one same person, which wouldn't actually be considered organized crime under any definition. And we're currently working on developing some of this uh, with research into the social network structures behind trafficking. Um, Speaking to Emily's points earlier about the rescue myth, And the idea of trafficking being exploitation gone wrong, sorry, um, being migration gone wrong, this was very much what we saw looking at the detailed trafficking case files. So actually a large majority of the people involved weren't rescued by any agency. They extricated themselves, they came forward, and they were often met with disbelief or were, you know, did go to the police and did report and were told, "No, no, no, this is just a civil matter go to your embassy. And there were cases of, you know, people who were picked up walking down the motorway to try to get to their embassy in London because they had no money, they couldn't get on the train, they had no support. Um, And that sort of brings you to this question of, you know, it's all very well trying to identify as many people as possible and give them this modern slavery label. But what do you do after it? Because actually, often the support is wholly inadequate um the fact that this set of 450 people all came from the eu was really interesting because this was pre-brexit they all had the right to move so this wasn't actually a question about needing legal migration channels it was more i think speaking to emily's point around opportunity and people in situations where they needed money they needed work the overwhelming majority of them Um, came to the UK or moved within the UK voluntarily in the hope of better work or in the hope of any work. So again, this kind of trying to tackle things by telling people don't move um, really raises huge problems if you don't, don't have viable options, which I guess brings me very quickly to the questions around the politics of it I think there's benefits to um, I think there's benefits to the focus on trafficking in that it's allowed for more attention to extreme abuses. Over time, that's translated in some respects to more appreciation of the need to tackle labour exploitation more broadly. There has been more funding, but what's been done with that funding is highly variable. There's some very good work, I think, that's going on, and there's some that's incredibly troubling. There's far too much of a tendency in my perspective to rely on overblown rhetoric, dodgy statistics, simplistic claims, exceptionalizing the issue, treating it as a contaminant, and very dangerously, and I think probably Rose and David might pick up on this, the using of anti-trafficking as a kind of backdoor for hidden agendas. And for me, that happens in two places in particular. The first is in conflating sex work and sex trafficking and using the kind of anti-trafficking rhetoric to push for dangerous legislative reforms like the so-called Nordic model, despite it being shown to be very harmful and having no demonstrable effects on reducing trafficking. And the second is in terms of an anti-immigration agenda more broadly. And for me, I mean, if you just look at the way Preeti Patel, the Home Secretary, for example, is responding to the recent tragic deaths in the Channel, this idea that this is the evil traffickers, the evil smugglers, and putting more money into border control and stopping people moving will solve the problem is clearly completely delusional. and. Um, Yeah, maybe Rose and David will talk on that more generally. So very, very quickly wrapping up, I guess uh, systemic, situational and individual levels of tackling trafficking, I think, need to be addressed and not just a criminal justice response, more transparency and accountability and involvement, Mm -hmm. like Emily said, of people whose voices aren't heard enough.
1: Thank you very much. And I very much like how how you highlighted sort of the question of, are we, is the goal to tackle trafficking or to tackle uh, exploitation in general? Because they often look very similar to each other, but the response is usually held up for how to tackle trafficking, can even miss some of the most obvious cases, right? You just, you, know, you highlight of the of EU migrants that got um, uh, exploited once they got here, sort of shows the limits of using a border policy approach when you can walk right past, legally walk past border control and your are start once you get here. Um, But just to keep to time, um, to move on to Rosemary and David, who asked to present together. They've been looking at this from the other side, and they've been um, researching people that have been convicted of modern slavery offenses. And I know that they have found a a similar wide variety of stories that don't always conform to what we might expect. So um, without further ado, could you just tell us what you found out about um, from speaking with these people and how their stories also compare to the framework of Emily's book?
4: Sure, thanks, Cameron. Well, um, let, let's start with a quote from Emily's book, my favorite quote. She says, uh, Modern slavery, as a metaphor for severe exploitation as a political frame, constructs a way of seeing that makes us blind to things we need to know. By characterizing severe exploitation as exceptional, it also produces moral legitimacy for the very policies that enable severe exploitation in the first place. So this, as Rose and I are going to be arguing in our forthcoming book, Demystifying Modern Slavery, which will come out with Routledge next year, is absolutely spot on. Um, Emily has has sadly beaten us to the point, but we can add to that a little bit with the study that we've conducted, the first uh, primary study of modern slavery offenders in the UK, uh, which provides considerable evidence for the claim that Emily is making there. But I think it actually should also cause us to question whether the myopia of the modern slavery frame is now generating more risk and more harm than it actually resolves. So um, to give you a bit of background, between 2018 and uh, 2021, we conducted biographical interviews with 30 people who'd been convicted of trafficking, smuggling, immigration-related crimes under the Modern Slavery Act or other allied legislation. Our research participants have been implicated in trafficking for sexual exploitation, uh, arranging or entering into sham or forced marriages, keeping people in domestic servitude, facilitating illegal entry into the UK, labour exploitation, exploiting vulnerable people to supply illicit drugs or supplying illicit uh, drugs or alcohol in exchange for labour or sex to vulnerable people or to young people. Uh, Of the 30 people we interviewed, 21 men, 9 women, um, only one had not served a prison sentence. Among the other 29, sentences ranged from 6 months to 12 years and averaged over 5 years. So the sample then, were from, from a criminal justice perspective, disproportionately quite serious offenders.
5: No doubt from the court's perspectives, these lengthy sentences were reflective of the harms that were visited on victims. And there's no denying that a small subsample of the men fitted the stereotypes of organised criminals. Idris, for example, was a former Nigerian police chief who had hired destitute people, typically sex workers, to smuggle drugs across international borders with him And who was protected by serving officers back home. Darius was a former Romanian riot police officer, ran a business laundering money, some of which derived from the international proceeds of sex work. John had been the muscle for protection rackets in metropolitan nightclubs where illicit drugs were sold before he took a job as a driver smuggling Vietnamese people from Paris. But these men weren't necessarily typical of those convicted for modern slavery offences or those serving the longest sentences. Some of these were people whose lives had been destroyed by the legacies of colonialism before the UK had added destitution and the threat of deportation as insults to the brutal injuries suffered by those on the wrong sides of 21st century globalization. Rashid, serving 12 years for purchasing a sham marriage, had grown up in indentured labour on the Pakistan-Afghan border. Then he came to the UK on a tourist visa, becoming a victim of acute exploitation at a British off-licence where he worked and lived to send money home and then was tricked into paying for a marriage to avoid being deported. Similarly, a Cape Verdean woman, Estelle, sentenced to four years' imprisonment, Became severely indebted through gambling and was encouraged by a man who helped her bring her children to the UK to arrange sham marriages between Nigerian men and Portuguese women to enable her to make repayments and send money back home to her family. We haven't got space to elaborate on the lives of all 30 of our participants, unfortunately. So for now, we'll focus on four groups that have attracted considerable media attention sex traffickers, people smugglers, and labour exploiters, and then those involved in the sexual exploitation of children, commonly referred to as grooming gangs.
4: So let's start with the sex traffickers. Among those who trafficked adults for the purpose of sexual exploitation all claimed to be working with sex workers who understood the nature of the work they were signing up to. And in the case of the foreign nationals had come to the UK, typically from Eastern Europe or Southeast Asia, having undertaken sex work in their countries of origin first before seeking higher rates of pay in the West. Only one participant appeared to be physically forcing women to sell to sell themselves. Adam, having taken his sexual partner's passport after he rescued her from another family who were abusing her and physically uh, assaulted her. So he hoped that this woman would pay her way in the house where he and his family lived. Conversely, Faisal considered himself to be running an elite escort service with women whom he regarded as, as his friends, some of whom were also quite able businesswomen. Andre, a heroin user, came to the UK in search of drug treatment from Romania. He designed websites for women who lived with their male partners in a house he shared with them. Darius claimed only to sell flight tickets online to couples of whom he asked very few questions, much that he explained like any travel agent wouldn't ask you where you were going, what you were going for. Anton was little more than a taxi driver for women, including his own partner, who was working in the sex industry to finance her cancer treatment. Uh, Andre would drive the women from the airport to properties, usually for just 10 pounds a ride. Two women, Sandra and Grace, were both former sex workers themselves. who would become brothel keepers, partly to establish better working environments for themselves and other women. And in Grace's case, also to escape domestic servitude. Nina, who also ran a brothel, did so in collaboration with a male partner, who had subjected subjected to near-lethal domestic abuse.
5: The perpetration of various forms of labour exploitation and people smuggling was not always easy to separate out, as most migrants who enter the UK illegally come to work. When exploitation followed, it was usually the outcome of processes that typically began with migration journeys and or working agreements that victims had entered into wittingly, as Emily said, where migration goes wrong. Some smugglers who drove foreign nationals across borders were aware that their passengers were going to repay their travel debts on arrival, but saw little wrong in helping these people who were coming to work. Others thought it was right to help fellow fellow refugees like themselves. Alessandro, for example, was a long-term unemployed Albanian refugee with a history of post-traumatic stress disorder after his time as a teenage combatant in the Balkans. He went to collect a lorry that he discovered upon arrival contained other Eastern European migrants as a favour to a man who had lent him money to pay for his brother's medical care when he was critically ill. Others charged with smuggling claimed to have been duped into transporting undocumented migrants, either because they didn't know the passengers were hiding in the vehicles or because the passengers convinced them they had a right to enter the UK.
4: Let's turn to the labour exploiters. Amongst those involved in hiring workers who became exploited, one shopkeeper, Sammy, saw himself as doing a favour to his tenants in a house of multiple occupation, offering them small amounts of work and leftover food from his takeaway shop. Likewise, a married couple, Abimola and Tambara, both of whom worked for the NHS, thought they'd done a good thing by bringing two teenage domestic workers, quite legitimately at the time, over from Nigeria. The young women were provided with the prospect of an education and money to send back home until they presented as victims of bomb slavery, possibly because they'd been denied a right to remain in the UK and possibly because some of their earnings were being paid directly to their fathers. Charles, the corporate lead for logistics company and the only participant we interviewed who had not served a prison sentence, had failed to explore under what terms Romanian migrant labour was being supplied to a meat processing plant where profit margins were really tight. Meanwhile, Raja, the co-director of a charity that brought religious preachers to the UK from India, had actually been duped by others working within the organisation. The others were making a profit for themselves by seeking visas for the applicants who wanted to come and work in the UK, but had no ability to provide religious instruction.
5: Lastly, to turn to the grooming gangs and child sexual exploitation. So a few of these groups that we've talked about already would... have considered themselves to have very much in common with this final category of people convicted for trafficking children for the purposes of sexual exploitation, of which there were five in our sample. Three British Asian men and two white, one British and one African women, described sexual relations at house and hotel parties that had been seemingly casual from the perspective of the men with many of the young women consenting to sex because they were persuaded that it would bring them mutual love and exclusivity. Our analysis of these stories revealed how the deceptions and self-deceptions of heterosexual intimacy were amplified by differences of age and experience, often by men who worked late in the nighttime economy, some of whom were also living precarious lives. Some of the men assumed that where consent had been negotiated on one occasion, it was then presumed in subsequent occasions. They also also assumed wrongly that children can consent to sex, that people who are intoxicated and or drug dependent can freely consent to sex in exchange for illicit substances or alcohol, and that women below the age of 18 can consent to being paid for sex. Two of the men had become drug and alcohol dependent themselves but they could just about afford to finance their habits, unlike the women who were cajoled into trading sex directly with those they considered their friends or in Linda's case their children. The young women typically had parents who were struggling to care for them or were dependent on either a care system working with inadequate resources or pimps who took a cut of their earnings and this was part of the paradox the men who abused young women failed to grasp. They, the exploiters, were people who had made young women feel safe, as Hallett's 2016 research revealed, but who also, as Susan, one of the female perpetrators who was also a victim, explained, were also men who had fucked her and her sister up, in her words. The men had needs of their own that they could barely face up to. Needs that were obscured in the reenactment of pornographic fantasies of sexual encounters that, from their perspective, just happened at parties, often with little dialogue beforehand and no sense of care or commitment afterwards.
4: So what is the truth about modern slavery? Well, one truth is that almost by definition, victims often have very precarious lives, which limit their capacity to choose alternatives, alternatives to deals and debts. In ways that they in ways that those who exploit them often fail to fully recognize. The reason why modern slavery offenders often fail to recognize the stark choices victims face is that somehow quite serious histories of social disadvantage of their own, including child abuse, drug use, post-traumatic stress disorder, indebtedness, substance dependencies, and experiences of being exploited. Others do include business people working at the margins of legality, or working in firms which lack capacity to compete in industries that rely on cheap migrant labour when immigration rules suddenly change. In some cases, attempts to reach out to regulators or law enforcement by such business people simply confirmed a need to cover up their complicity with others working alongside them in order to protect co-workers, including migrant co-workers who were at risk of deportation. Another truth then is that modern slavery offenders are not a coherent group with common motives reducible to evil, evil or barbarousness or whose offending can be reduced to a single cause deterred by tough talk or by hostile immigration policies. Sure, a few offenders are organized and are organized in a way that works across borders, but many are barely organized in their everyday lives and some live at the absolute margins of society. The truth about child sexual abuse is that it's part of the fabric of British society, that some of the least well-protected young people are subject to, and that classifying it as trafficking leads some victims to be classified as offenders, and some sex offenders to be punished as traffickers, leaving their understanding of issues of consent and vulnerability largely untouched.
5: A truth about the sex trafficking of adults, as Emily notes, is that it is undertaken by women who see few other means of meeting their financial needs, and that in order to do this in countries where sex workers have no rights, they have to rely on the services of others to provide transport, accommodation, IT support, and physical security. People who do so on their own terms in an unregulated industry. A truth about people smuggling is that it's not reducible to trafficking, that the smuggled pay substantially more than Western tourists to cross borders that have been rendered increasingly hazardous by the state. And this creates situations of indebtedness that then incentivise the taking of cash in hand work in British industries that provide goods and services that we all consume. So to conclude, Emily's absolutely right that modern slavery constructs a way of seeing that makes us blind to things we need to know. The unpalatable truth is that it has blinded us for so long that we now need to start talking to the perpetrators of these evils, we have deemed unthinkable to appreciate exactly how the policies that enable severe exploitation in the UK to give rise to circumstances that render the world's most vulnerable people dependent on others who are unsuited to caring for them. Thank you very much.
1: And thank you to you both. Um, That was fascinating. And it it does sort of, I mean the combination that you mix of sort of the, the plan, the opportunistic, the accidental, the misclassified, the, um morality and the politics of of what might qualify and what might not it all feels much less ominous and monolithic than some people might have come here assuming emily could since we're talking about your book could you now respond to ella and rosemary and and david with any sort of thoughts you've had about what they've said
2: yeah of course thank you and thank you so much for those wonderful um presentations I'm very, very excited for this forthcoming book from Rose and David. I think it's gonna be a much needed contribution. When I was researching my book, it was really clear to me that there was a total dearth of um, research and evidence regarding the perpetrators that it just was like missing from academic, the academic world and and much else. And um, yeah, I'm really glad that they're they're filling that gap. One thing that sticks out to me, which is um, perhaps a slightly cheeky point, um is that um you know both these presentations have highlighted the fact that neither victims nor villains are um groups that we can consider as kind of singular or coherent in that way and you know it really is a characteristic of conspiracy theories to wish to impose order on a fundamentally messy world like as i was saying when i spoke earlier um, we kind of want to have this crusade. We want to solve this problem. And that urges us towards seeking simplistic solutions. And in reality, things are more complex. So I think it's um, it's kind of um, a message from, from everyone's research here is to really question that need to impose neat order on things that in reality aren't. When Ella was talking about um, all the differences in exploitation that are seen and really exhorting us not to kind of lump them together in that way, it was really recalling to my mind the problem that we have in this space with these numbers. I talk about this in my book, but this idea of the global slavery index, for example, we've got apparently 40 million slaves in the world today. There are more slaves now than ever before. Neither of these is a sensible statement. And I explain why in the book. But um, when you hear what Ella's describing, when you hear what Rose and David are describing, and certainly when you look at what those kinds of global statistics bring together, you are talking about the most wide ranging, diverse range of things in terms of nationality, gender, location, exploitation type, sector, just everything is in one. A forced beggar in East London, a farm laborer in Chad, a brick kiln worker in Nepal and so on. So what is the common sense of lumping those together? And I wanted to mention that Professor Joel Quirk, who is a leading expert on this um, whole area, has suggested a much more sensible approach would be quantifying the enabling causes of exploitation so poverty education and so on um and in a way that plays to some of the other things that have been talked about so if we're talking about children who are um essentially being groomed we know care leavers are at high risk of that so looking at the kind of pathways that are there of course that doesn't make a big sexy number that can be on tabloids saying look at all these slates and that's the problem that we have um and finally i just wanted to say that um you know, it's, it's actually so heartening to hear that um, Rose and David have done this work because I've spent a lot of time with the sex worker rights movement. And if you speak to sex worker collectives, you will um, hear from them that a lot of the women they work with have been um, charged sometimes with trafficking, with being facilitators of trafficking. So, for example, exactly like we were hearing for, for helping put adverts up and things like that. Um, and they lot of very very angry about it and um it really is so important that we bring to light the realities underneath this storyline and in particular that we question who we're assuming is allowed to know things We have this assumption that it's the policymakers, it's us all here now as academics and authors or whatever who know about these things, and we are obscuring the voices of people who can actually tell us what's going on. And I think that that's probably one of the strongest things we could do to start addressing the problem.
1: Thank you very much. Um, We have about twenty minutes left for some Q and A. We have gotten some great questions. I'm very sorry that I can't. We will not be able to get to all of them but I'd like to sort of follow up exactly on what you were saying, Emily, and ask you a question that we have from Andrew. And he I mean, he basically makes the point of, regardless of what you want to call it, everybody in this panel has sort of prefaced all of their comments with, "there," but there is obviously very severe exploitation in this world. And so he asks sort of, well, should we then, regardless of what you want to call it, be focusing on dealing with that? Or should we be more focusing on dealing with the, with the root causes and fair economics and redistribution and try to eliminate those push factors, if you like? Mm.
5: Um,
1: so,
5: Yeah, so...
1: Let's keep all answers brief so we can get to as many questions as we can.
2: Um, I am... Um... I like this question because it reveals a kind of understanding that's quite common. Um, So we need to understand that working conditions occur on a spectrum, right? So from decent conditions through abusive ones, the lower level abuses, so someone's being underpaid a bit, that kind of thing, through to exploitation and the really severe forms of exploitation at the sharp end of that uh, spectrum. The thing is that the assumption um, of how the current kind of strategy to tackle modern slavery is that yeah the highest harm is where we should be focusing resources and obviously I want those people not to be in that situation however we also know from the evidence and indeed the UN special rapporteur on trafficking has also very clearly said this where we have a higher prevalence in that middle part of the continuum the lower level forms of abuse we also have more of the extreme Uh, forms of exploitation. So they're not divisible in that way. Purely focusing on this extremity is just um, a kind of misinformed strategy. And that's certainly what the modern slavery story does. We pick off the most extreme cases um, and fail at the overarching policy goal. And this plays into current kind of reigning economic ideology, right? Which is that uh, regulating businesses is bad, Um, red tape is bad we should let businesses be efficient which usually means um, kind of problematic for normal people and great for for balance sheets you know Um, and in reality what we've done is allow um, labour standards to be eroded and degraded so we've seen in the UK context labour inspectorates are awfully under-resourced, you are not gonna get an inspection on whether you're paying your wages anytime soon, you know. and there's just not enough staff at all to do the job of making sure people's rights are being observed, and trade unions have massively declined as well, which are the flip side of protecting yourself in the workplace. So we've basically opened the doors wide to um, abusive working conditions. And with that comes the extremity. So you can't separate the two sensibly. If you wish to employ a strategy that purely deals with, deals with the extreme things, that's fine. But you will just be mopping up after the spill all the time rather than stopping the spill in the first place.
1: Thank you very, very much. Um, it is a question for Rose, um, a anonymous attendee, has asked, uh, she said that she read a paper by you, and in the paper you mentioned that um, people convicted of trafficking, trafficking offences are usually not very keen to talk. And so, she's wondering sort of how you overcame these challenges to get the the data you presented, and also how we can trust their version of events.
5: Thanks. I think this paper is from my PhD research, in which, and this also speaks to another question which is also from an anonymous person it might be the same one about the ability to access people to interview which I had intended to do for my PhD but there are just a large number of, of barriers to that and Dave and I had to jump through a number of hoops to be able to interview the people that we did so I don't think that comment and that discussion was about the people that we've interviewed it was rather it so it wasn't that I'd spoken to people who were not keen it was that at that point in my academic career it wasn't an option that was available mostly I think due to just the lack of resources for people to facilitate that kind of research into prisons at that point in people's careers which I I can understand it it, um it's not ideal and I think so yeah I, I mean actually in our experience in this project and we have got a breakdown of the whole number of people that we approach and how many people say no and, and so on. Actually, a lot of them were very keen to talk to us. The second part of that question I'm going to hand over to Dave about how do we know that people tell us information that can be trustworthy?
4: Of course, you can never know but what people are telling you is totally trustworthy, whether they're traffickers or, or politicians. So there's, there's issues there. But what we used was a method called the free association narrative interview method, which I've been using for over 20 odd years now with domestic abusers and hate crime offenders and other people that commit sex offenders and so it's um it's a method that um asks people to tell their life story and it tends to use two in one or two cases i think three interviews so you get the life story told you let the person go freely with what they're trying to tell you use active reflection in much the same way a, a psychotherapist might do sort of probe beneath the surface And then you take your interview away and you you do a really detailed transcript, including the part words and part sentences and changes of tone before you go back for your second interview. And then you try and probe around some of the evasions and some of the contradictions. And sure, there were things in the interviews that we discovered did contradict. We tried to make sense of them. In, In some interviews, participants seemed to get younger. One guy was 50 one week and 47 the next week. Certainly amongst those that were abusing young people, there were tensions and contradictions between the ages of the victims. So teenagers that were 18 suddenly might have been 15 in the second interview. So we were alive to that and we haven't really got the space here to sort of pull that out. But in the book, we do try and pull out some of those tensions and contradictions. We didn't really have, once we were in the room with people, we didn't really have trouble getting them to talk because they were all people that we spoke to who really felt they'd been misunderstood. Um, Many of the foreign nationals had no understanding of how the court process works in the UK. Um, They'd been told to plead guilty. They had pled guilty, thinking they were going to get a lesser sentence. Didn't happen. Um, They thought that if they pled guilty, there'd be a chance for them to explain what had gone wrong at the end, but of course just got sentenced because the, the moment of offering an explanation had long gone. So in many cases, people were quite pleased to talk to us what we can't do or what we couldn't do is control the people that kind of came into the sample so much so a lot of the time we tried to get access to people who were just on the brink of being deported and there was no way to to get to them but where we had probation officers and prison staff that were willing to make an introduction there wasn't that many refusals to to give us an interview.
1: Thank you. Um, we have a, a very good question from Phil Brewer, and I'm, I'm not sure which of you is best place to answer it, but he makes the point that we're all sort of beholden to metrics. It's very hard to get away from metrics, And but we, we've heard in many places that prosecutions are a particularly bad m- metric for either problem or success, and he's wondering um, what the panel thinks of sort of what could be better ways to measure outcomes or impacts of counter human trafficking activity and I'd add in or of human trafficking slash exploitation slash modern slavery how do we measure how do we better measure either side
3: i'm happy to take that one Please. Um, i saw that question and i thought oh, i like that um <laughs> well i think this is one of the big challenges the evaluation evidence base when it comes to trafficking and exploitation is a sort of unbelievably underdeveloped which when you consider that millions and millions and millions and millions have been poured into this field over the last few decades it's actually staggering that so little is known about you know what's effective but when we start talking about what's effective it's really important not to fall into those kind of expectations that you're going to have a single solution that works everywhere, because as I think Emily's book and all the presentations today show, so much depends on context. So part of the challenge, I think, is that there's a lot of interventions that have good intentions, but maybe haven't thought through the mechanisms by which they're intended to work, let alone necessarily measured them there's very little kind of impetus for follow up. Um, If it's not built into funding structures and expectations, because evaluation is expensive, then it's not necessarily going to be prioritised. But also, you have, you know, like we've also talked about these interventions that actually don't have very nice intentions at all, they've got quite obvious hidden agendas. So there may be a reluctance there to actually open yourself up to evaluation. But I think, in terms of Making it the norm to think from the very start and having to articulate, what are we trying to achieve here? What's the mechanism by which we're seeking to achieve this goal? And what would then be the metrics that you're measuring? So, you know, rather than just reporting that you've released this campaign and it's been clicked on 500 times on Facebook think about going that step further and you know are you trying to change attitudes are you trying to change understanding um are you trying to ensure that people arriving in the UK are aware of their rights as workers are you trying to so kind of really kind of context specific what's trying to be achieved also then being open to the groups that are most effective and thinking not just in terms of possible positive consequences, but um, negative consequences, which anti-trafficking efforts absolutely can and do have. So trying to measure those um, and really kind of being transparent in that respect. And I think, yeah, this this is just a huge lack of evaluation evidence. And there's also a real reluctance often within the anti-trafficking field to be open to evidence that does challenge orthodoxies. So, for example, there was some research by, I think it was the IOM, recently around um, the impact of awareness campaigns relating to migration more broadly. And it actually found that they have very little impact. Probably because people who are migrating are generally doing it because there's some quite strong drivers there. So being told it might be dangerous isn't necessarily going to help. And yet, constantly in trafficking, the go to thing for prevention is awareness campaigns. And they might have a role to play in some circumstances with specific groups and specific messages, but. It's not necessarily or, or i would say it's certainly not the most effective way of achieving prevention wholesale
1: emily i think you wanted to add something do you want to add something about well oh. yeah, <laughs>
2: um i'll go and then rose can if she wants um so oh yeah i just wanted to add briefly thank you for this question phil who is quoted in my book and was an absolutely excellent interviewee as well um and uh, knows a lot about this topic. Um, I think, so obviously I'm not a police officer or a criminologist. So I'm gonna come at this from a slightly different angle, which is for me, the core question is what are we trying to achieve? Do we want to punish or do we want to solve, right? Because actually I think a lot of um, the kind of ways of assessing whether it's working or not are actually assessing whether or not we're punishing people not necessarily whether or not we're solving the underlying problem whether we're solving that individual um, person who's been victimized life and we know from rates of re trafficking and we know from the fact that we lock up and deport victims of trafficking that we're not doing very well on that so that would be my kind of core question is like what are we actually trying to achieve therefore what should we be measuring obviously i would rather that we were measuring things that mean people are not being exploited and that people are going into better pathways after exploitation. And so that then comes back to basically a paradigm shift, an entire paradigm shift, because, you know, talking about like measuring conviction rates and stuff like that, currently, obviously, we have a major problem in the English Channel, we have a major problem in the Home Office, right? And one of the suggestions for solving that um, by a massive load of migrant experts and and organisations is to introduce humanitarian visas, which would mean people can actually come here legally without having to get onto these boats, right? And um, through this process, Joint Council of the Welfare of Immigrants, for example, is one of the people, one of the organisations talking about that. That would be a far better strategy to showing that we're effective in reducing trafficking rates than looking at metrics around arrests and convictions and so on with regard to that group of people. But it requires it's a totally different way of thinking about what, what we're trying to achieve, basically.
1: And Rose?
5: I just yeah, briefly wanted to add, it, particularly in terms of police um, measures, and I know Ella has talked about how long the duration of time that people are um, exploited for, And in the same research project that we've been talking about, we've also done some analysis on police data and found a kind of consideration of of both the duration, the, the amount of time that people have been exploited for, but also the length of time that people don't report for. So sometimes people don't report for two years or three years. So when people report on, this is the number of crimes reported this year, as if that's an indication of the modern slavery that's happening right now. Some of it's happened two or three years ago but that's not communicated. And so when you're trying, if that's going to then inform practice, the stuff that's historic needs a different response than the stuff that's happening now. If people have been exploited for a long number of years and then waited a long time to report that, that takes a different response than things that are happening immediately and and are reported immediately. There's all kinds of reasons why somebody might, come out of exploitation and then choose not to report their um, victimisation for a long time. Actually, in in our um, quantitative data, a lot of the time until they are facing deportation, um, because they've managed to establish themselves and settle themselves into successful lives. So I, I think using those temporal measures to understand a little bit more about reporting and the historic offences is an important picture of, of policing. And we have an article under review about that at the moment.
1: Thank you. We have three minutes left. And I think I wanted to end with the question from Jay Albanese, who he asked a lovely question, which is, so how do you account for the ongoing public and policy blindness to the similarities between the traffickers and the trafficked? And I would add, so... And what is, what is the moral lesson from that very astute observation? And since this is Emily's book, I'll let her have the, the final word.
2: Thanks, um, it is an excellent question. And I imagine there would be incredibly interesting responses from the other people here. My opinion is something that I do talk about a bit in the book, which is actually about one of our inherent needs as humans, right? And our wish to find order and safety in things these these realities that we for on this panel are talking about are messy they pertain to um, kind of Things about human nature that we don't necessarily want to observe, things about the economy that we don't necessarily want to observe, because they're very hard to change and so on. You know, I know that often when I'm speaking, people are like, Yeah, but what can I do now? What can I I always get asked a question at the end of events of like, what can a member of the public do to help tackle modern slavery? Just no matter what I've said for the like last hour. <laughs> so we desperately seek. These, these neat stories, these rationales that make order through chaos. And we do it in all parts of our life and this is no different. So that is certainly part of it. And then that is fed and stoked by politicians that understand how to deploy that on purpose. So we see that in the UK, with politicians repeatedly pointing to traffickers to deflect blame from themselves for the deaths of migrants who've come here undocumented, for example, or indeed on an economic scale, we don't want to have a conversation about why so many single mothers in the UK, so many sex workers are single mothers right? Because there is a lack of flexible work and appropriate social security system and so on. So it's basically very convenient for politicians to tap into that part of us that wants to believe that everything's really okay. It's just that there's a monster under the bed that we can scoop out and then get on with business as usual. And I think that is fundamentally what that blindness is about.
1: Thank you very much. It is, um, quarter past two I believe we're going to be cut off in about 12 seconds anyway so I'll say thank you to our panelists thank you to our audience and enjoy the other 79 panels I think we're
5: going to be having
1: (laughs) have a good day everybody and thank you very much
5: take care thank you
0: Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organized crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organized Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organized Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organized Crime and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime.